Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Please be seated. Now, verses 20 to 24 of our text, John chapter 4, it's right near the end of there. It's a mere five verses. But in these five verses, the word worship appears ten times. Now, I might be slow on picking up on patterns, but I think a ten-time occurrence qualifies as a pattern. This, in fact, is what the story at the woman at the well is all about. It is about worship. It is about false worship versus true worship. And so that's what we'll talk about today. So first, false worship. Now, here is your well-thought-out, articulate theological thesis of the day. Idolatry is stupid. (laughs) But so is going 20 miles and over the speed limit during a blizzard. So a little stupidity never stopped anyone. Idolatry is like five failed marriages. Now, this Samaritan woman marital history, while juicy enough for TMZ, is really symbolic. It is really an illustration for something more that's going on here. You see, the Samaritans were a particularly promiscuous people. They worshipped all sorts of different gods. Call them Americans if you want. Now here is 2 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read it to you, but I don't want you to be distracted so much by all the names you don't know. What I want you to do is count along with me How many of the nations, how many of the nation's gods, the Samaritans went after? But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon, that's one, made Sukkoth Manoth. The men of Kuth, two, made Nergal. The men of Hamath, three, made Ashima, and the Avites, that's four, made Nibhaz and Tartak. You know, I really wish our modern-day idols sounded like this, Nergal and Tartak, because it'd be a lot easier for us to identify them and to see how ridiculous our idols are. So that's four. And then the Sepharvites, that's five. They burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Ondimelech. Five nations' gods. Five former husbands. Idolatry is like a deadbeat husband, a real bum, who doesn't give an ounce about you. Idolatry is like drinking from a well that is going to run out. Even more than that, idolatry is like drinking from a nuclear waste swamp. What you need is a well that will never run out. Idolatry is like getting all of your calories from Twinkies and Impossible Burgers when you need something real, like steak. You are eternal creatures. Now, if you need proof, go ahead and read the whole Bible. They'll prove it to you. But if you need an everyday example, here's your proof. What do you say when you haven't seen a kid for a couple months? Oh my goodness, how much you've grown up. I'm so surprised. Would you stop growing up? How do you keep doing this? It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Why are you surprised that a little kid's growing up? Okay, you see it every day. And yet, and yet on the same hand, okay, it is surprising precisely because we are eternal. When you see a kid growing up, that means aging, and you know deep down that aging means death. 
And that is not how it was supposed to be. And so worshiping, trusting, and relying on anything other than the one true God, it's like getting fed finite junk food. It's going to leave you wanting more and more and more and never being satisfied. This is the main root of anxiety. Okay? It is eternal creatures chasing something finite. Now, we might not have the same gods of the Samaritans, Nergal and Tartok, but we've got plenty of idols. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? Personal comfort? It's a big idol. What do you spend most of your time looking at, staring at? Bets are it's probably a screen. Big idol. What is your deepest desire? More food for your belly? More money? Maybe this morning it's an extra hour of sleep. Okay? Is that your deepest desire? When's the last time you actually got down on your knees and prayed? God calls you out on your idols precisely because he loves you and he cares for you. And he knows that you chasing all of these things is going to leave you high and dry. You are chasing something that's going to drive you insane. If your idol is your health, You'd be pretty surprised, pretty upset when you're diagnosed with something that you cannot control. And so here's Jesus, just cutting right through the crud. And he says to the Samaritan woman, hey, go call your husband and come here. Now the reason Jesus says this is precisely because he knows that she doesn't have a husband. In fact, she's at five. She's shacking up with her living boyfriend right now. That's why he says it, because he wants to cut through the mess. He says to you... Hey, go grab your Bible reading plan and come here. And the reason he says that is because he knows that you don't have a Bible reading plan. And your Bible's got so much dust on it that the EPA wants to put on a sign warning of an environmental hazard. Jesus says to you, go grab your brother and bring him here. And the reason he says that is because you have no idea where he is. You haven't talked to him in 16 years because of some silly grudge. Who knows why? You bring a lot of junk, a lot of garbage to the well. I'm talking about church. Five former husbands, gambling, addiction, alcoholism, lust, anger, grudges, all these things that you spend way more time thinking about than you spend thinking about God. And yet Jesus still talks to you. Your sinful past is not a barrier which God cannot get through, but rather they are obstacles that he wants to overcome. He calls you out on your sin because he wants to forgive you. This is not the most harsh saying in the Bible. You know what the harshest saying in the Bible is? Neither will I tell you. That's the harshest. That's Jesus talking. Because that is the divine silent treatment. Saying, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> At least when Jesus calls Peter Satan... He continues to talk to him, and he continues to teach him. And so here's Jesus today teaching us about true worship. This is the second part now. True worship. The only thing that could actually leave you satisfied, leave you with meaning and purpose. You know, the Lutherans have always been good on worship. The Reformers used the German word for worship. Gottesdienst. You can hear the word God. Gott. It means divine service. Okay, we still use the language today. Divine service setting four. That's what we're, we're using today. And this teaches us a heck of a whole lot about worship. 
worship, service, and has two types of service. And the first and foremost, the most important type of service that happens at church is that God serves you. Okay, that's, that's the most important. Now, many Christian traditions completely miss this. They think worship is only something that we offer God. Now, that's the second type of service. That's true. But if you only have that, then you've got nothing to offer God. If God doesn't give you something first, then you have nothing to give him thanks for. And so why come to church? Because you need it. Okay, your weeks are long. They are exhausting. You live in the world, which is Satan's playground. If you're at work... The standards of what you say and do are constantly changing. It's exhausting keeping up with it. I can't keep, keep track of what I'm allowed to say and not say anymore. I can say anything from here. It's good for me, but I don't know about your workplaces. Why well, come to church? Because you mess up. You sin. You do, dumb, you do dumb stuff. And you don't do the things that you're supposed to do. You think sinful thoughts. You need forgiveness, and you need it bad. That's why you come to church. You come to church because you long for the eternal. You're an eternal creature, and you can't get it out there. When you come to church, you get a well that rivers up in you to eternal life. You come to church to feed on the divine. And then after all of that, you return your thanks, your praise, and your thanksgiving to God. Now, Jesus says this about true worship, and it's, Good for us to dwell on this, because this is often misunderstood. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And this gets misunderstood all the time. Okay, This is, in fact, not the proof text for Pentecostals falling over in the aisles or in the pews. More to the point for us, Okay, this is not the proof text that God is spirit, that we don't have to come to church, that we can worship God out on the lake or on the golf course. Okay, What Jesus is saying is that true worship worships the triune God. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Okay, worshiping God in spirit. Remember last week, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born of water and the spirit. And so to worship God in spirit means those who now have the spirit, those who have been born of the spirit in their baptism, they worship God wherever they may be. It doesn't happen on a particular mountain. And then to worship God in truth. Okay, this is not an abstract concept. Although it is worth noting that there is such a thing as objective truth. So many people want to deny that today, but there is such a thing as objective truth precisely because the truth is a person. It's not some wild idea. The truth is a person and is the same person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to worship the Father in truth means to worship Jesus. And he is not contained to Jerusalem. He is not contained to Mount Gerizim. That would have been the mountain that Jesus and the Samaritan woman were talking about. That's where the Samaritans worshipped. Because Jesus has ascended into heaven, he is found on every altar throughout the entire world. Now, if false worship is like five bum husbands, then true worship is the best marriage. Isaac meets Rebecca at a well, and they get married. Rachel, she meets Jacob at a well. Well, and they get married. Well, first after Jacob marries her sister, um, kind of a small detail. I'm telling you guys, if you start reading the Bible, you're going to realize that the Bible makes soap operas look like paint drying conventions. Moses meets Zipporah at a, any guesses? 
Oh, okay, yeah, good. You can catch on to patterns at a well. And guess what? They get married. The Old Testament well is the equivalent of our water cooler if you switched out gossip for engagements. And so, when Jesus meets a woman at a well in John chapter 4, you'd be expecting a proposal. And that is exactly what you get. But it is so much deeper than earthly marriage. Our earthly marriages simply reflect this union that God wants to have with you. Jesus is proposing to this woman to have real union. Union between the creature and the creator. And Jesus is proposing the same thing to you today. And so leave all your idols behind. Leave them with Laban, like Rachel should have done. They're not going to do you any good. Everything else you pursue in this world will never do. Stop searching for meaning. Stop searching for purpose. Because this morning, meaning and purpose has found you. Jesus is the best lover. No, he's not overly attractive, according to worldly standards. Sometimes he says things that embarrass us in the public square, but deep down you know that he's right. More to the point, all these false things that you go after, they don't care about you, they don't love you, but Jesus does. He does love you, and he proves it to you by laying down his life for you. And from his cross, out of his side, flows rivers of living water, which make a well in you, which springs up to eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.